Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah. This is Abdurrahman, and you're listening to the Heartwork series on the Qalam podcast. Heartwork is a weekly session at the Roots Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad wasallam. If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org sustain. We really appreciate your contribution. We appreciate your prayers. And we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan. Wassalamu alaikum warahmatullah. Assalamu alaikum. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Welcome home. Welcome back to our Monday night study uh, of the seerah of the life of the Prophet Muhammad for young professionals. Welcome to Heartwork, um, where we discuss uh, different topics throughout the year. We are currently in the life of the Prophet Muhammad uh, probably for a few more months. Um, this, these Monday night sessions are for young professionals to grow in their faith and to uh, grow in their connection to Allah, to God Almighty, and to the Prophet Muhammad uh, last week, where we finished or where we ended off our lesson, we were right in the middle of um, one of the great moments in the uh, history of the life of the Prophet which was the battle of the trench. And we finished off with um, one of the miracles that is reported to us by Jabir bin Abdullah, one of the companions of the Prophet um, in which the the summary of the situation was such that uh, Banu Nadir, that was a tribe uh, that used to live in Medina, and they had violated their treaty, they had violated their agreement with the Muslim community. When they were expelled from Medina because of their treachery, their uh, their leader, one of their leaders, Huyay uh, ibn Akhtab, he became extremely irate at the humiliation and at the, uh, you know, the, the expulsion, the expulsion that they went through. And this was very difficult for him to take, even though he was truly at fault, right? And so this is something that's, you know, going to come up again and again in this conversation of uh, Khandaq, which is this leader, Huyay, uh, the leader of Ben Nadir, he was so motivated against the Muslims. He was so motivated against the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu even though he was clearly in the wrong, you know, uh, Benu Nadir, despite have, having a treaty with the Muslims, with the Prophet Sallallahu and the Muslims of Medina, Benu Nadir tried to assassinate the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu during a visit that was uh, very cordial in nature. And so, really, there's no uh, there's no justification for a treachery like that. And so, to feel irate and to feel angry uh, at your expulsion from your city without, uh, you know, without owning up to the fact that it was ultimately uh, the no one's fault but your own, is something that is revealing itself as being a trait of arrogance and rejection. We see the same kinds of trait with shaitan. We see historically Fir'aun. Uh, they have all these interesting traits of just rejecting the truth of the matter, not able to, not being able to own up to their own uh, issues. And so we see it here now. So 
Ben and Nadir, when they're expelled, they go and they try to gather as many tribes as they can, including Quraysh, and they gather a large army, 10,000 people, and they start to approach Medina to try to eliminate the Muslims once and for all. The Prophet ﷺ, when he hears about this, he quickly gathers his companions and he asks them for shura, for consultation on how they should approach defending Medina. Should they um, go out and defend like they did with Badr and uh, like they did with Uhud, or should they stay in and defend like they, like the Prophet ﷺ ultimately wanted to during Uhud, even though they went out? At that moment, Salman al-Farisi, he raises his hand and he says, Ya Rasulullah, I have a suggestion, if I may. And the Prophet said, sure, go ahead. And Salman al-Farisi, who was a Persian, who Persians and Arabs did not get along at this time, uh, but the Muslims were able to put aside their tribal you know, identities and associations and affiliations for the sake of their faith. Salman al-Farisi said, Ya Rasulullah, back in Persia, whenever we were scared, whenever we feared the oncoming of an enemy in this way, you know, lots of people, 10,000 people, soldiers coming and fighting, we would adopt the tactic of digging a trench, digging a moat around our city, uh, or at least a portion of our city to act as a passive defense so that we could be protected. Because if you have a trench that is big enough then you won't need to put soldiers at every point around the city. You can dig a trench around a significant piece of the city and you can trust that if it's wide enough, if it's deep enough, that uh, no one's going to be able to cross that part of the trench. No one's going to be able to cross over it or build a bridge over it. So he suggested this and the Prophet Sallallahu and the companions, they accepted this and they liked this. And so this became now for, you know, the next seven to, you know, one to two weeks, this became their uh, their focus, the Muslim community in Medina, the, the Muhajir Ansar, the Sahaba, this became their focus. What did they do? They started to dig the trench. And we talked about how the Prophet ﷺ joined them in the digging of the trench, that he didn't just tell them to dig the trench and then watch them, but he he dug the trench and then he 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 made dua for them, right? He 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 made dua openly, said, Oh Allah, he says, you know, there's no there's no life except like the life of the Akhirah. Uh, and then he said, Allahumma barik fil ansari wal muhajirah. Oh Allah, please bless these people, these ansari doing uh, that they're defending the deen. And um, and then we finished off on the story of Jabir, where Jabir says that you know he saw the Prophet Sallallahu in extreme hunger and he couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand to see the Prophet Sallallahu in that way. So he went home and he asked his wife if she'd be willing to cook a meal for him. She said yes. And they were able to cook a small meal for the Prophet ﷺ. When Jabir went back to the Prophet ﷺ and told him that my wife has prepared a small meal for you, you know, out of uh, our, our love for you and our concern that you hadn't eaten, what ends up happening is the Prophet ﷺ, he invites uh, everybody. He asks Jabir, says, is it okay if I bring everybody? And Jabir, you know, at that point says, uh, yeah, I guess so, you know. So he goes back home to his wife and he says, may Allah bless you. She said, what happened? He said, the Prophet ﷺ is coming to eat and she said good and he goes no with everybody with everybody so she became very concerned right she became very concerned because obviously she only made food enough for maybe one two three people and the prophet sallallahu had different things in mind and so he brought the entire army what he did is he told everybody to wait outside and to come in a couple at a time and that he would be the one that would be serving 
the meat and the bread and the broth that he would be serving it and he said not to not to uh, un not to uncover it leave it covered and then when i serve it we'll uncover it quickly and then we'll recover it back once i'm done serving and it ended up feeding the entire group of people the entire uh army and there was still some left over so this is one of the miracles that happened during this amazing moment in the seal of the prophet sallallahu during the battle of the trench uh, now, what ended up happening during this this time uh, when they finished the trench, when they finished digging the trench? Remember that this was a this was like an extremely necessary tactic because the Muslims did not have the numbers uh, that would be able to meet and match the Quraysh and the tribes, the Confederates that were coming uh, one to one. They weren't going to have that those kinds of numbers. So when the Quraysh arrived, they were actually completely dumbfounded. They were totally confused. They had no idea, you know, how to respond uh, to the situation. Um, now, even though there was a trench, the, the, the Muslims still stood guard behind their side of the trench and still stood to make sure that nobody was going to try to, you know, cross by going under it or cross by building a bridge. And so you still had soldiers lined up. But the trench was sufficient in protecting the Muslims in the immediate, uh, for the immediate time being. There was really only one concern. There was really only one concern. And after a few days of the Quraysh trying to figure out what to do, this literally happened for a few days, and the Muslims standing guard, and anytime somebody would try to cross over you know, arrows would be shot at them. So it was a very, very foolproof plan. This trench was like an amazing plan. It was executed perfectly. There was really only one weak, potentially weak point that could have affected the Muslims. What was that weak point? Uh, there was a tribe by the name of Banu Quraida. Banu Quraida was another tribe. So we had those three tribes, the three Jewish tribes, excuse me, we had Banu Qaynuqa, the original one, that um, had initially been stirring up ill will between the Aus and the Khazraj, and they were all very disappointed. The Banu Qaynuqa were disappointed that the Prophet Sallallahu lineage came from the Arabs, and, and that even though they were waiting, the Jews were waiting in Medina for the next Prophet, because that was what was prophesied in their book, um, they, that particular community of, of, you know, of the Jewish community, that Jewish tribe, did not want to accept the Prophet because obviously he would become the de facto leader. So that was the first tribe. Then you had Banu Nadir, and both of them had in their own way tried to harm the Prophet despite having uh, a treaty. When the Prophet arrived to Medina, he had a treaty that he signed. He had an agreement, a pact that he signed with uh, the communities there, the Muslims and the non-Muslims. And they agreed that Medina was their home for everybody and they had to protect it. And the only way that they were going to be able to protect it was that if they put aside their differences in belief and they united upon the issue that this place had to remain secure, it's our home. And so we are all going to unite and defend against any of our one enemies. If somebody comes and attacks Somebody comes and attacks the Muslims, have to defend them as well. So 
there were those two tribes, and we know that the situation, unfortunately, did not uh, end well for them. So now, Benu Quraida is the last uh, major Jewish tribe there. Huryei, who was the leader of Benu Nadir, he sees that Quraysh is unable, and the tribes are unable to cross this trench, this moat, and he is, you know, obviously upset, he's furious, he's irate. And so what he does is that he decides that this is the only chance that he has, the only chance that he has at trying to break through this defense mechanism is by going to Benu Quraida. Why? Because Benu Quraida is positioned at a place that there is an entry point, there is no trench dug in their part of Medina because they are serving, they are functioning as the defense. So in the strategy of how to defend Medina, they had, we have the trench, we'll dig it along the south, southern border, and then we have Benu Quraida. We don't need to build a trench over there because they will serve as our defenders. So Huryei ibn Akhtab, the rabbi of, of Benu Nadir, he decides that it's his goal to go and try to convince Benu Quraida. If he can convince Benu Quraida to go back on their treaty and to break their ties with the Muslims, now you have a significant entry point and a really serious problem for the Muslim community. Remember now, he is so just absolutely, you know, just fuming that the Prophet ﷺ expelled his tribe, but he's unwilling, he's unwilling to acknowledge that it was his own fault, right? So this is sometimes when you're like blinded by your anger, you start to do things emotionally that you don't realize are actually nothing more than further indictments of your guilt, right? And this is an important trait that that Muslims have. You know, we we will see in this story that you you have mistakes that are made even by some Muslims. Abu Lubaba at the end of the story, one of the companions of the Prophet, he makes a mistake. But instead of you know, instead of making his mistake about how upset he is at the situation, he owns up to his mistake and he seeks repentance. But here you have this this Huryei uh, and his inability to own up to his mistake, it blinds him. It really just completely removes his vision and he becomes so motivated to do nothing but to end the existence of the Muslims and the Prophet Muhammad In fact, he, you could argue, is like even more motivated than the Quraysh at, in, in, some, in some points. So he goes to Banu Quraida. He goes to this, this tribe and he goes to the leader of their tribe whose name was Ka'ab ibn Asad. Uh, Ka'ab ibn Asad was the leader of Quraida. And he knocks on the door and they said, you know, Banu uh, Quraida, Ka'ab ibn Asad, he, he looks and he sees who it is. And he says, Huryei, you know, he's speaking to him because they know each other. He said, uh, you are a very unlucky person. He basically says like, look, wherever you are, I don't want to be, okay? Please leave me alone. Like, please, I beg you, right? As my mother in Egyptian Arabic used to say, Arguk, please, I'm begging you, right? Arguk, like, I am begging you. I hope that you will just leave me alone. He was like, basically, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I can't even risk people seeing me talking to you, okay? Why? Because he said, I have a treaty 
with Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. I have a treaty with him, and I have to observe that treaty. I don't intend on breaking that treaty. And he said, when it comes to my relationship with the Muslims, with the with Muhammad, right? We say sallallahu alaihi wasallam. When I see uh, that relationship, he goes, I have nothing. I have experienced nothing negative with him. So he's saying, like, look. I don't know what your plans are. I know what happened to you and I know where you are now. Now you're coming over here to this side and, and I don't know why you want to meet with me, but let me just cut to the chase, okay? He says, I have no interest in even talking to you. I am very happy with the way our lives are and we have nothing to complain about when it comes to the Muslims, okay? That's a very honorable response. I mean, you know, to... to The religious you know, identity aside, the fact that a rabbi is coming to him, he's also uh, a Jewish leader, and he tells him, look, this is something between you and the Muslims. I don't want to get involved. I'm, we're good. Okay? We're good. But Huyay, out of his, his, his fury, was not going to take no for an answer. And so he kept knocking on the door, asking him to opening it, uh, asking him to open it. And Kaab said no. So they kept debating back and forth. No, please leave me alone. Please leave me alone. Eventually, Hurye knew what would get Kaab to open the door. And that was an insult. That Hurye, if he could provoke Kaab by offending his honor, that that would be one of the ways that he could get access to his home. So what did he say to him? He said, I know why you don't want to open your door. Hurye is saying this. I know why you locked your door. Saying you're not opening your door because you're very cheap and you don't want to share your food with me for dinner. That you're a very stingy person. He goes, I understand. You know, you're stingy. The rumors, people, what they say about you, it's true. You're a very cheap individual. Now remember, nobody likes being called cheap. And especially the Arabs, right, with their honor of generosity and hospitality, even more than anybody, they don't want to be called cheap. Okay, especially in this in this tribal time where reputation was very serious, you know. And so to invoke that was a very, very slimy way of Hurye uh, trying to convince Kaab to let him in. So eventually, Kaab, in order to respond to this attack on his character, he let him in. And he said, uh, he said, okay, fine, come and eat. You know, I don't want to talk to you, but if you're gonna if you're gonna say that I am, you know, uh, cheap or whatever, he said, you know, come in, come in and eat. So Kab lets him in to eat, and Hurye sits down at the meal, and Hurye says to him, uh, "I have something for you that is like an amazing opportunity, right? I've come to you with nothing but a good opportunity. Like you have to take me up on this." So Kab says, "What is it? What's your opportunity?" So Hurye said, I have single-handedly, our tribe has united the Quraysh with all of its leaders and chiefs, with all of the big people in Quraysh, and all of the different tribes, with all of their leaders, and many of the different smaller tribes in Arabia, we have all come here, and our goal is to destroy Muhammad. Our goal is to destroy him and the Muslims. And he says, he basically what he's telling Kaab is that join us because look at look at the numbers. 
look at what we have. You know, we have, I brought everybody. We brought everybody. If we win, right, if we win this battle and we end the Muslims in Medina, we will get what is ours. We will get this power, that situation. We, we will have all of that. So he's trying to convince Kaab to join. Now, Kaab is a man of a lot of integrity. It's very interesting. Like, he has a lot of integrity. You hear it. First, he refused to let him in. He refused. And then he's letting him in. Look at what he says next. He says, you have not come with, to me with a good opportunity. You haven't come to me with any goodness. He goes, you've come to me with nothing but shame. You've come to me with an opportunity of humiliation. And he says, you bring me nothing but a cloud of embarrassment. And he goes, it has nothing good for me. You know, most clouds, they bring rain. But you bring me a cloud that has thunder and lightning with no rain, right? Rain for them was good, obviously. So he says, like, you know, a cloud that looks like it's good, but I know that there's no rain in this cloud. It's only, it's only thunder and lightning. So he goes, leave me alone. He goes, because I have not seen anything from Muhammad except for goodness. So just leave me alone. Like, I don't want to, I don't even want to have this conversation with you. Uh, then one of the people from Quraida, he came, one of the people who was kind of overhearing this, he came and he uh, he put in a few good words as well, okay? So from the people of Quraida, his name is Amr ibn Sa'ad. He reminded everybody who was kind of hearing the rumors of what was happening. You know, oh, I heard Huye met with Ka'ab and this and that. So this guy was reminding people like, hey, we have to be, we have to be honorable and we have to honor our treaty with the Muslims. Beyond this religious difference now, this is a community responsibility. So Huye ibn Akhtab, he eventually just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And eventually, eventually, he pressured Ka'ab into accepting the uh, agreement. Eventually, he won. Okay. Now, I wanted to pause here and share something that I think is really interesting. Ka'ab ibn Asad is giving a lot of good answers. Okay. He doesn't even want to meet with him. He keeps saying that, you know, you're, you're a very, very unfortunate person. Like, I don't want to even have a relationship with you. And then he says, like, you know, uh, Muhammad وسلم, is somebody that we have nothing against him. He's only treated us well. We have nothing against him. So he's giving all the right answers. And then even when he lets Huye in and gives him dinner, Huye, you know, tries again and Ka'ab says no. And he rejects him again. Why is it that suddenly, why is it that suddenly Ka'ab accepts this, this offer? Why is it? Well, Huye offers him something, and he said that, look, he said, I, I'm going to pledge to you my life. If you join us, I'll pledge to you my life. What did he mean by that? He said that, join our army. If we win, then we win, okay? He said, but if the other tribes, like Quraysh and Ghatafan and others, if they leave, he said, I will bring my people, Banu Nadir, we will come into your city, your village, the village where Quraida was living on the outskirts of Medina, on the edge of Medina, he goes, we will come here. And when the Muslims come to fight you because of your treachery, we will be here with you. And he said, I will suffer the same fate as you. So now he's like giving him like a very serious pledge. So this apparently was enough to convince Ka'b ibn Asad to go back on his treaty 
And one of the lessons that I thought about when I was reading this and I thought, man, subhanAllah, like you were really hoping that Ka'ab ibn Asad was going to make the right decision, right? Like everybody as they're, as they're hearing the story, they're like, yeah, good. Like this guy is good. He's on the right track. He's on the right track. And then eventually he, he unfortunately makes this treacherous decision. The reality is everybody that, listen up, man, everybody here is human being. Everybody here is human, right? You can only withstand pressure for so long. Like sometimes, sometimes, even something that you never thought you would do. Listen to his language. It's very strong. He never, ever even entertained the idea of going against the treaty that they had signed with the Muslims. But everybody has their, their threshold. Every person has their threshold. Every human being has their limit of how much. And eventually, you can imagine, Huyay eventually tempts him and gets through to him and tells him that we have so many people fighting. There's no chance that they're going to win. The only thing holding us back is you, is where you are. If you open up for us, this battle is as good as one for us. We're good. Okay? And he says, we will win it. And if we don't win it, we'll, I'll be here with you. I promise. Eventually, he gave in. Okay? So the lesson here for us, like what lesson can we take from this conversation that was happening, is that honestly, there comes a time when you are put in a situation where you are being pressured to do something that you know is not the right option for you. You know it's not the right thing for you to do. You can only trust yourself to withstand it head on for so long. You can only trust yourself to withstand the temptation for so long. Eventually, everybody has their breaking point. Everybody. You know, it's like everybody thinks they can stay awake until they fall asleep. All right? So, you know, people think they can oftentimes stay awake a lot longer than they can until they fall asleep and they're conquered. So Ka'b ibn Asad, he thought he could handle it. He thought he could. And he let, instead of acknowledging his humanity and saying, you know what? Like, I don't even want to talk to this guy anymore. I don't even want to have these thoughts in my head. I don't even want He let him in. And unfortunately, Hurye ibn Akhtab was able to chip away at him. And this is how shaitan works as well on us. That's why Allah Ta'ala says, shaitan. Don't follow the footsteps of shaitan. Because shaitan doesn't make giant leaps. Shaitan doesn't jump in giant steps. Because shaitan realizes and knows his strategy. He knows that that's going to be difficult for people to commit to. You know, to go from this to this. Like, that's a big change, shaitan. You pray, stop praying. You pray five times a day, stop praying altogether. That's a big jump, right? So then what does shaitan do? Shaitan chips away once. Okay, you know what? You know, this prayer is difficult, man. You can just, just, just pray when you wake up, okay? Or, oh, you know, you're working during this time. Just pray when you get home. So he will work very, very slowly. He's very patient. Okay, one of Shaitan's greatest strengths is his patience. And so he will work very slow. Just like here you see Hayyay working very slow, trying to chip away, chip away, chip away. He doesn't even tell him what he wants to tell him until he gets inside his house. So this is one of the realities of human beings, that you can only avoid, excuse me, you can only avoid this kind of temptation for so long. Okay, now what happened was obviously people saw that Hurye ibn Akhtab came to his home and they saw that he left 
and this was witnessed. You know, there's intelligence. Muslims have intelligence here and there. You know, they put different companions here. So this intelligence, this word that Huryei met with Ka'ab, this news of potential treason, um, it got back to the Prophet Muhammad that Ka'ab ibn Asad had officially canceled and abrogated their agreement with the Muslims, that he had officially said, it's over. We don't have a responsibility to you anymore. Okay? So this got back to the Prophet ﷺ. Now, this news was not confirmed. So the Prophet ﷺ was very concerned, but he didn't act on it right away. What he did was he took four of his companions that he trusted, Sa'ad ibn Mu'az, Sa'ad ibn Ubadah, Abdullah ibn Rawaha, and Khawat ibn Jubair. And he took them and he sent them to the tribe of Quraidah. These were all people who were Ansari. So he sent them to Banu Quraidah because they knew them, they were neighbors. They had spent more time than just the last couple of years together. And so he said to them, go and find out what their situation is. The Prophet said to them, these four, go and find out what their situation is. He said, if you find out that what we're hearing about them is true. He said, then come and tell me, but don't tell me, don't pronounce it out loud. He's saying, don't pronounce it out loud. He said, tell me in a way that is a hint that I will be able to understand. Like, give me sort of a, a clue, okay? If, things, if, if it's true that they violated the treaty, give me some sort of a hint. He said, uh, if, if you find out that this rumor is false and that they had remained faithful to us, he said, then go ahead and announce it. Like, it's, there's no harm in you announcing this. Why did the Prophet ﷺ give these instructions explicitly? He will, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but the Prophet ﷺ is concerned about the morale of the Muslims. He's concerned about the morale. He's concerned about their spirits. How are they going to handle the information if they find out? that they're the tribe that they had relied upon to protect them in one area of Medina, that that tribe had gone back in their relationship, had gone back in their agreement with them. So how would they handle that? So the Prophet wanted to protect their morale. Now, the delegation of these four companions met with Quraida and they asked them and they said, we just want to make sure, because obviously it's a time of war. They said, we just want to make sure we can depend on you guys. Can we depend on you? Are you still, you know, in strong alliance with us? And Quraida said, Quraida said, wow, okay, you guys are coming and talking to us now. They said, you, you guys want to come check up on us now, but you kicked out our brothers, Ben al-Nadir. You kicked out our neighbors, our friends, right? Our Jewish, uh, our Jewish neighbors, you kicked them out. And you didn't ask about us then, Right? So you didn't ask about us then. And so the, the four companions were a little bit concerned by this answer. I said, okay, that's interesting. All right, they violated their treaty. Everyone here knew that they violated. They tried to kill the Prophet Muhammad okay, and they were kicked out. All right, and then they tried to form an alliance with some people and, you know, they didn't take their leave. They left, right? So he said, what... Uh, Look, God's messenger. 
They said, who got messenger? We don't know him. Uh-oh, that's not good. Okay. So Sa'd ibn Ubadah and others, he exchanged harsh words with them. But Sa'd ibn Ubadah, he told him, relax. Okay. He said, you are not here to exchange words with them. You're not here to go back and forth with them. Okay. And he said, he looked at Banu Quraidah, Sa'd ibn Ubadah. He looked at them and he said to them, he said, look, I'm afraid for you people. I'm afraid that you are going to fall the same fate as Banu Nadir. I'm afraid that you guys are going back on your word and that you're not going to, uh, that you're not going to survive this, just like Banu Nadir did. So when they got back to the Prophet ﷺ, these four companions, with this unfortunate news that the tribe of Quraida that they had uh, abrogated their agreement with the Prophet ﷺ, okay? That when they had abrogated it, and now these four companions had confirmed it, they went to the leadership of Quraida, and those people said, nope, you kicked out our brothers, we are not interested in the Prophet ﷺ, we don't know who he is. Now these four companions go back and they're like, uh-oh, it looks like the rumors were true. It looks like these people were, uh, you know, it looks like these people are uh, uh, not, not on our side anymore. So he goes to the Prophet ﷺ, and remember what the Prophet ﷺ said. The Prophet ﷺ said, don't announce it. Don't announce it. He said that just, uh, you know, give me some sort of, Give me some sort of clue to let me know what the what the situation is. So they gave him just a sort of clue. They talked about some other, uh, you know, situation, and the Prophet ﷺ he said, "Allahu Akbar, God is great." He says, "Don't worry." All right, he's talking to the believers. He said, "the the situation will be just fine. Right, we're going to be fine." Okay, and uh, in this moment. He had an attitude of just complete and total trust in God. Like complete and total trust. Like no situation could ever shake his trust in Allah Ta'ala. No situation could ever shake his faith. Okay? And despite the fact that this was probably the one strategic point that they were depending on. Despite the fact that this is the one strategic point that they were depending on. The Prophet did not let that get to him okay he still had this trust and he wanted to make sure that the morale of the community was not affected by this news and so he had it very very quietly that information delivered to him and given to him in that moment okay now this news obviously became a little bit more widespread people understood and the prophet sallallahu he told some of the muslims you know, he told them that, don't worry, I'm, I swear to you, by God, by Allah, that he will provide for us a way out. We're not going to have to worry about this, right? Like, I know that it seems like there's no situation that, uh, you know, I know it seems like the situation, there's no way out, you know? But he said, Allah will take care of us. Don't worry about that. And he even promised them, he said, that I know for a fact I can see and I can I, I, I know and I'm prophesizing that one day we will be able to go and make tawaf around the Kaaba feeling absolutely safe. This is a statement that he's making at that time that is like completely and totally 
absolutely like it can't even be imagined you know that the muslims were going to be able to make tawaf on the kaaba he it couldn't even be imagined like we escaped from mecca we ran away from mecca how could you how could it like you have to trust in allah so much that i'm telling you that place that we just ran away from that place that we never we, we don't even know if we're ever going to be able to go back as far as what we thought he said, I know that we're going to be there making tawaf. Okay? Now, what happened when the Prophet ﷺ said this? The Some of the hypocrites in Medina, who we've been talking about a little bit throughout this entire series, some of the hypocrites of Medina, they had revealed their true feelings. And they had revealed who they really were. And this is a trait of hypocrisy that affects everybody's heart, which is when the going gets tough, Okay, when the situations become difficult, when things are no longer easy, believers rely upon their faith to pull through and to have that strength to make sure that they're going to be able to make it, right? And they rely upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in those moments. That's what part of having iman is, right? Iman is the, re is the reality that a person has where they know, you know what? I'm going to be able to make it. It doesn't matter how tough the situation is. That Allah Ta'ala will take care of me. And I'm I, I'm going to trust in Allah in this moment. Hypocrites and hypocrisy on the other side is that at the first indication, at the slightest indication of anything difficult or anything bad, they want to cut, they want to cut and run. Okay, we want out. So what did they say? They went to the Prophet and they said, Ya Rasulullah, is it possible that we go back to our homes? Okay, is it possible that we go back? We want to go back to Medina. We don't want to be in the outskirts anymore. We want to go back to our families. Like we're done with this, you know. And now Banu Quraida has, you know, we found out that they're 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 abandoning this strategy. They're abandoning this relationship. We're done. We have to go. We have to go take care of our families. We don't know what's going to happen. And the Prophet was promising them that no, this whole gathering. He's saying no. Trust me, it's going to be okay. We're going to be all right. You know. And they say, you know, he said, we're going to be able to go and make the wafer on the Kaaba. And the Prophet was promising them things like, you know, don't worry. Like, this is nothing. The, the empires of Persia and, 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 and Byzantium, like, we will be there. We will be there. Like, the Islam is not going anywhere. And the, the, some of the hypocrites responded by saying, we don't even feel comfortable, you know, going to the, going to the bathroom right now. We don't feel safe. You're telling us that we're going to be able to go to Mecca and make tawaf. You're telling us that we're going to be able to go to Persia. You're telling us that we're going to be able to go to Byzantium. Like we're going to be able to have all of these things. You're saying that this is going to happen. We don't even know if we're safe going to our own bathrooms. Like they were upset. Okay. And some of them even had the audacity to just outright claim that the Prophet's promises were not true. All right. So the hypocrites, they revealed themselves. What's the big lesson here? The big lesson here is honestly, you can learn a lot about yourself by how you react in situations. Especially when there's no clear exit strategy, when there's no clear way out. It's one of the quickest ways to learn about yourself, how you respond to situations where the going is immensely tough. You know, if you look at the way that the Muslims responded, the Prophet ﷺ responded with complete and total trust. And the Muslims were able to benefit from that. They were able to glean off of that trust. But if you look at the hypocrites, they 
they were scared to the point where, you know, they just wanted nothing to do with this anymore. They were convinced that this was the end and they wanted to try to cut and run before they had to, you know, they thought they were on a sinking ship and they wanted to try to jump out before the boat went down. Right? So what happens now is that Huye ibn Akhtab, he goes back to the leaders of Quraysh and Ghutafan and the other tribes that are there. And he tells them that, uh, you know, this is the situation that we've, we've confirmed that we have uh, the agreement of Ka'b ibn Asad. Okay, we've confirmed that we have the agreement of Banu Quraydah, like things are going to go well for us, don't worry. Now, Banu Quraydah, they told they told Huyay, they said, give us some time, give us like a week or so, like seven, ten days, to kind of prepare ourselves, because we are not prepared to go against, we're not prepared to join you yet, like we have to prepare ourselves, uh, you know, physically and with, you know, our equipment and things like that. So they couldn't just, you know, the, the Quraysh and them couldn't just come in right away, they had to wait and let Banu Quraida kind of like sort out their situation. Maybe they had different, uh, you know, properties and things like that that they had to fortify and ensure before they jumped ship and changed sides. So he went over and told them, he told Quraysh the news that Banu Quraida were going to join. And this gave them so much of a boost, right? This gave them so much of a boost now to like, they felt like absolutely were, were, we're, we're going to win this battle for sure. There's no, there's no way that we're going to lose this battle. So the Prophet ﷺ is concerned. And what he does is he goes to one of the leaders of Ghatafan, one of the tribes. And he tries to make an agreement with them for them to put down their arms and to stop fighting. So what he does is he goes to them and he says, you know, we will give you, we will grant you... Uh, provisions and he told them you know something like we'll give you one third of our provision provisions and the tribal leaders of Latafan they said no you know we want half of the provisions we want half of them so the Prophet he was willing to actually sign this agreement because again at this point trying to make sure that you have some sort of you know some sort of safety in the situation is a like utmost paramount importance okay so he goes and he wants to make this agreement but before he makes this agreement he goes back to Sa'd ibn Mu'adh why because Sa'd Mu'adh is one of the leaders of the Sahaba and he goes to him and he says I need to consult with you on something because ultimately these provisions these farmlands these belong to the Ansar these don't belong to me personally so the Prophet was saying like I'm negotiating using them but I want to get your final approval and your clearance before we use these. So he told him the situation. He gave him, you know, this is what I'm offering. What do you think? Is this something that we should accept their counteroffer? And Sa'ad ibn Mu'ad, he asks an amazing question. He goes, Ya Rasulullah, he goes, is this something that you want us to do? If you want us to accept this offer from them, then we'll accept it. He goes, or is this something that God has ordered us to do? Because if that is, then we'll take it. He goes, but if this is something that you're trying to do to help save us, he goes, can I, if it's that, can I share 
an opinion or a thought that I'm having. So the Prophet said, yes, it's it's extremely difficult situation. I'm ultimately doing this. I'm trying to broker this deal so that we can save, you know, we're giving away some of our provisions, but we're trying to save the community, save the city. And so Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, he says, Ya Rasulullah, he says, ultimately, I have more trust in God handling the situation for us and being able to take care of the situation without having to give them even a single fruit from our farmland. Like, I don't think we have to give them a single crop. I have complete and total trust that this situation will be uh, ultimately resolved. Okay? Now, the Prophet responds to this and he says, I, I leave this matter up to you. Right? This is your choice. The Prophet says, it's your choice. Amazing leadership. Incredible leadership. The ability to say that, you know what? The Prophet ultimately is the one who all of this responsibility is going to fall on his shoulders. And he's trying to make this deal with this tribe to make sure that there's no bloodshed and he wants to ensure safety. And But he still doesn't speak unilaterally. He still doesn't speak and say, you know what, this is my decision. I'm the leader. I'm going to make the decision. He goes and he consults Saad and Murad, one of the representatives of Ansar. And Saad actually, this is the kind of comfort that the Prophet would exude as a leader, is that people felt comfortable sharing their opinions with him, even if it meant like something that wasn't exactly what he was saying. Now, he always, companions would always ask, and they would say, Ya Rasulullah, is this something that God has sent you? Or is this something that you are teaching or doing? Or is this something that we have the, 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 the space to kind of share our opinions in? And when the Prophet ﷺ said, no, this is something that you have, you know, you have ample room to share your opinions and, and share your thoughts, that is the time when the companions would share their thoughts. Remember, we had the example from the Battle of Badr when the Prophet ﷺ was setting up stations in the battleground before the battle and he didn't uh, set it up near the well initially. And one of the companions came and said, Ya Rasulullah, is this something that is from Allah or is this your own strategy? He goes, no, this is my own strategy. So he said, may I suggest you know, moving forward to cut off the water supply? Because if we do that, then we're, we're going to have a little bit more leverage than we would have had if we left the well in the middle of the battle, right? So this was the mindset the companions had. And ultimately, when you see the sacrifice that these companions made, a lot of it goes back to the fact that they had this level of reverence for the Prophet of Allah, that they had this reverence for him. And if you look at your own life, sometimes you know you wonder like what it would take for us to have the faith of something like a companion of the Prophet. Like, what would it take to us to reach that status, that level? And ultimately, it begins in the very in the very reality of our soul, it begins with us having this level of deferment, being able to defer what you want to what the Prophet wants, being able to defer that and say, you know what, like, I would rather actually have what God wants for me than even what I want for my own self. That's like the highest level of faith, that a person would want what God wants for them more than what they even want for themselves, right? Because ultimately what you want for yourself changes every day changes every minute. You know, you want to have, you know, something for dinner, you want to have chicken, and then you change your mind, you have beef, and then maybe shrimp, and then maybe vegetarian. 
you change your mind, right? People change all the time, trends and all these things. So for us, we want spiritual stability. We want Allah to want for us and we want to want that more than we want something for ourselves. Because, oh Allah, what I want for myself, it might change based on the weather. It might change based on how I'm feeling or my relationship or who I'm talking to. But what Allah wants for us is something that is universally going to be good for us, universally going to be virtuous for us. So this was a very, very tough situation and they chose a, a tough path in this situation. But despite the fact that they had this tough path, they were trusting in Allah Ta'ala the entire way. Now, one of the things that did happen that bothered the Prophet Sallallahu um, immensely and the companions immensely was that during the uh, during the siege, okay, during the siege, it was happening over the course of days and days and days, um, the Prophet Sallallahu and the companions they actually ended up being unable, due to the constant engagement in battle, they were unable to pray. Some of the narrations say Dhuhr, Asr, and Maghrib on time. Some of them say just Asr, that they were unable to pray just Asr on time. Okay, And they combined that with, they prayed it with Maghrib. And this was something that actually showed, um, it caused the Prophet to show like a lot of disturbance uh, in his mood. On his face, like he, it was very, very upset by the fact that he was forced to miss prayers. Like this was something that really bothered him. And it's interesting because nothing else up until this point caused him to feel that kind of disturbance. Okay, um, not the not the treachery of Benu Khuraida, not any of that. You know, not the fact that the the, the army was ten thousand people. Not none of that. Like he didn't have the same level of 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 being upset. He didn't exhibit any of that as much as when he was forced to miss these prayers or delay these prayers, let's say, because of the battle, because of the fighting. So again, in, in one of the most difficult moments of this of this person's life, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, prayer never can take a backseat, right? Even in the time when a person is absolutely and totally occupied by something, prayer can never take a backseat in those moments. Why? Why is prayer so important? Like, why? Why is it something that is so important? You know, every other pillar has some exception where it can be conceded or done later or, you know, delayed, okay? Or there's a compensation that a person can pay for it if they're unable to do it. Why is prayer something that somebody always has to do? Whether it's late, whether it's sitting down, whether it's, you know, doesn't matter. Prayer has to be done. Why? Because ultimately, salah is the connection that a person has with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if somebody is willing to miss their prayer or not uncomfortable missing their prayer, then they're not uncomfortable weakening their connection with Allah. It's like some, it's like a person missing a meal. You know, if people want, are hungry and they're not able to eat, they get irritable, they get frustrated, they become upset. Why? Because they're missing out on their nourishment. They want to feel nourished. They want to feel sustained. They need some calories, right, to keep them going. Salah is what gives us the spiritual calories. Salah is, salah is what gives us that spiritual nourishment. If we miss prayer, then there, absolutely a person should be expecting to feel a sense of irritability and a sense of confusion and a sense of the same way that a person feels that when they don't have their sustenance, when they don't have their physical sustenance. Okay? Now... There were some uh, there were some moments when the fighting became 
very harsh. And when the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu uh, you know, some of the companions were even hit by arrows, and some of them, when 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 the Quraysh was trying to siege in, um, they were hit by swords. So it became it was becoming worse and worse. And the Prophet ﷺ, he had to employ some sort of tactic to help end the battle. So what did he do? He called upon a man from the tribe of Ghatafan who actually was a Muslim. Okay, he called upon. Uh, a man from the tribe of Ghatafan that Allah Ta'ala sent this person his name was Nur'aim Ibn Mas'ud and he sent him and Nur'aim said O Messenger of Allah when he when he met with the Prophet Sallallahu he said I am a Muslim I am Muslim but my people don't know, don't know that and he said that you can trust me to help the Muslims in whatever situation you need okay you can trust me so the Prophet ﷺ, what he needed most, what he needed most was not bloodshed. Okay, he actually even said this. He goes, if you join our ranks, if you fight with us, he goes, you're only going to increase our number by one. Meaning like, sure, we can go out there and fight and you can join us, but that's not going to help end this war. He said, if you can, a really valuable tactic would be for you to try to dissuade the people from attacking us and to end this war. And he said, even end it, if you have to, with trickery. End it with some trickery. Al-harbu khuda'a, you know, deception, right? End it with some deception. So Nur'aim, very interestingly, was a person who was very well connected. He had a lot of connections. He was networked very well. And so what he did was, he went to Banu Quraidah. He went to that Banu Quraidah. Remember, these are the people who had just freshly canceled their treaty and they are now getting ready to join the side of Quraysh and the side of Banu Nadir and Ghatafan. They're getting ready to fight the Muslims and attack them. So now it's going to be a two-front war. It's like it's like Urhud all over again, but even worse now. And he went to them and he said, it's me, Nur'aim. You guys know me, like, you know, because he knew them from trade and different sort of interactions. And he went and he sat with their leadership and he said, look, let me tell you guys something. He said, Quraysh and Ghatafan, he said, they're not in the same position as you. Quraysh and Ghatafan are not in the same position as you. He said, this city, Medina, is where you live, right? This is where your home is, right? And the people were saying, yes, yes, this is where we live. So he said, this is where all of your belongings are. This is where your homes are. This is where everything that you own is. And they said, yes. And he said, what happens if during this battle you start fighting your neighbors, the people that you had a treaty with? And what happens if all of a sudden the Quraysh and these people, they decide they want to leave? Where do you go? Right? You don't have any other homes. What happens? And they said, wow, that's a good point. And so we didn't think about that. Like, you know, what if Badr happens all over again? Or what if Uhud, they just decide to leave at some point and we're not ready to leave? This is where we live. And what if the Muslims are still here? Like, that's not going to be good. Okay? So he was saying, yeah, see, you guys are trying to cancel your relationship with them. You're trying to void your treaty, but you didn't think about these things. What if they just get up and leave? He goes, if things go south for them, they're just going to leave and you have to sit here in your home in Medina, and you have to face justice for what you've done. And he said, the best case scenario for you is that you 
should not fight alongside these people, Quraysh and Ghatafan, unless they offer you in, you know, um, what's the what's the word? Uh, ran- not ransom, what's the, like a deposit. Like they offer you in uh, in good faith, they have some of their leaders come fight alongside you. So you should request, you should say that we want some of your notables, we want some of your leaders to come fight alongside with us. Okay? And Banu Quraida was like, yeah, that's a great idea. Like, why didn't we think of that? If just to make sure that they're honest and they're not going to leave us, they should send some of their people here to us. They should give us collateral. There we go. Thanks. I mean, mashallah. They should give us some collateral, right? Uh, so Quraida was like, that's a really, really good idea. Okay. So then he left, Nuraim, he left Quraida and he went to the other side. He went to Quraysh and Ghatafan. Because remember, he's from Ghatafan. So he said, he goes, um, he goes, let me tell you something. He came to them and he said, I have some information for you that might be very valuable and I want to come and help you. And they said, okay. So they, they let him in. He goes, I want you to know that the tribe of Quraida is reconsidering their treaty with the Muslims. Okay. I want you to know that they're reconsidering it and that they're thinking about repenting and in offering of their goodwill to repent to the Muslims. He said that they are going to try to have a, they're going to try to offer a group of your nobles as hostages for the Muslims. So they're going to ask you to send your nobles over to fight with them, but they're actually just going to pass those people right on to the Muslims as a sign of good faith that they are uh, entering the treaty with the Muslims now. So he said, if Quraida asks you for your notables, for your noble people, you know what they're doing. Now you know what they're doing. So Nuraim, he told them all of this, okay? He warned them all of this, okay? Now what he did was he planted this suspicion amongst these three people. So what ended up happening? Okay. Banu uh, received a message from Quraysh. Quraysh says, the siege has caused us a lot of trouble and we're tired. Why don't we start making some moves and fighting? Quraysh said, sure, we'll fight, but why don't you send some people over? Why don't you send some of your people over? That way they can fight with us. Quraysh hears this and they say, oh my gosh, he was right. Right? He was right. And they say, we don't want to send people over to you. Why would we do that? And Quraysh says, oh my gosh, he was right. Look, they're going to leave us here. So now they're starting to doubt each other. Okay, now they're starting to doubt each other. So what happens is the situation becomes so tough that they actually consider now and they agree that the whole thing should be concluded. Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman, one night, it was a very, very difficult night. And the Prophet ﷺ asked him to go and check and to spy on Quraysh and see what they were saying because the fighting had died down. He went over there and he heard Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan said, and, and the Prophet ﷺ explicitly told him, do not do anything until I call you, until I tell you what to do. Abu Sufyan, he said that the situation is very difficult, it's very tough. We should all go back home. And he's saying that the, the weather is horrible, the fighting is not working, Ben Quraida is not standing up for their agreement. Let's all leave. I'm leaving now. You should come with me. Hudayfa said in the narration that I could have executed Abu Sufyan right there. I was so close to him. 
but I didn't because the Prophet said not to do anything unless I did it. Okay. So, subhanAllah, he went back to the Prophet and he told the Prophet what had happened. And Hurdaifa told the Prophet the report, and the Prophet he celebrated uh, the, 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 the good news that the siege was ending. If you're on Instagram now, the, the situation is going to end in a few seconds. I'm going to restart it, inshallah. Sorry, everybody, please hold. We're relaunching so I can finish, inshallah. It'll just be a minute. Instagram gives a one-hour time limit. Okay. All right. So, um, in that... In that moment and in that time, just to finish the lesson that we've been uh, that we've been covering, we'll finish in the next few minutes. When Hudayfa gives the Prophet ﷺ that news, the Prophet ﷺ he he thanks Allah subhanahu wa taala. He's in the middle of prayer. He makes du'a to Allah subhanahu wa taala, and this is the result of when the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ said very very early back in the beginning. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would never ever leave us hanging in the situation. When he assured the believers that no matter what was going to happen, Allah Ta'ala was never going to leave us hanging in the situation. This was the, the culmination of that moment. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he reminds the, the Muslims in the Quran of Surah Al-Ahzab when he tells the believers, he says, Remember the blessings of Allah when Allah sent down upon the enemy a storm. Uh, a storm that forced them to leave basically that you could not see, that you could not see the storm that we sent down upon them. Okay? So when the Prophet ﷺ, when he saw that these people were leaving and he looked at their camp and he saw that it was empty the next day, he praised Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he said, La ilaha illallah anjaza wa'da wa nasara abda wa hazm al-ahzaba wahda. And this is the famous dua that you make or the dhikr that you make when you climb Safa and Marwa in uh, Umrah, this is what you say. You say, Anjaza wa'da wa nasara abda wa hazm al-ahzaba wahda, which translates to, Anjaza wa'da, he fulfilled his promise, wa nasara abdahu, he, he gave uh, victory to his servant, wa hazm al-ahzaba wahda, and he uh, defeated all of the ahzab confederates single-handedly with a storm that forced them to leave after 27 days of sieging with no success. Um, and so the Prophet ﷺ, his trust and his commitment to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was fulfilled uh, in this moment. Uh, and even though it was a battle, even though it was considered a battle, it was not a battle in the traditional sense of a battle. It was a battle of nerves and a battle of patience and a battle of trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So when you think of the battle of Khandaq, when you think of the battle of Ahzab, it's important to remember that the strength that won this battle was the strength of trusting Allah Taala? The strength that won this battle was the strength of trusting in God. It had nothing to do with the strength of a person's muscles or a person's armor or their sword. It had nothing. To, it was literally the strength of utter and complete and total reliance upon Allah Taala. We ask Allah Taala to grant us that and more. We ask Allah Taala to give us the lessons from these stories that we can become better. Ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us pure faith 
and to protect us from hypocrisy, we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to, uh, you know, always give us moments that even when we feel like there's no hope, when we feel like there's no way out, that Allah ta'ala will grant us a way out. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Barakallahu feekum, everybody. Inshallah, we'll see you guys tomorrow. Uh, 5 p.m. We have our Perfecting the Prayer class with Imam Ghazali's text on Salah. Uh, we'll have that tomorrow at 5 p.m. Inshallah. So I'll see you guys then. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.